Okay, so uh, just a few announcements. Uh, Life Issues Recovery Walk is September 3rd, I believe, which is a Friday night. There's information. There's a table out in the lobby if you wanted to walk. There's a prep. Uh, you know, Steve likes people to do a uh, pledge for him. I think a fundraising type of thing. This is their, their annual fundraising deal, and I don't know all the plans for it. Um, so if you want to know more, stop at that table in the lobby on the way in uh, for the main service. The Bible conference is coming up on the 19th of September. So that's really, that, that's like a month from today, basically, or almost a month from today. So it's coming up pretty quick. Um, so please schedule that we, um, on your calendar so you can be here. It's going to be exciting. Um, and uh, definitely want to be here Sunday night. For sure, no matter what. If you can't be here any other time, please be here Sunday night. And you're going to enjoy it, I think. I hope. I'm looking forward to Sunday night for sure for the person that's speaking. And uh, our thrust is uh, focusing on um, emphasizing the, the need to translate the Bible. Preparing, preparing the work. Uh, now, we don't do translation work, but we have been involved as a church. And that's what I want to bring, bring to everybody's attention to the Bible conference. We've been involved in... Uh, translation projects or a couple of different projects now and uh, printing them and assembling them and so on so that's what we're going to focus on um, the next thing is about the, the man meeting that's the uh, that's this I'll have the 7 717 I don't think I, I still didn't change that date but it's this coming weekend if I remember right yep. yeah. yeah so uh, that's a four hour deal uh, breakfast is included uh, I know Steve Fleshman is one of the speakers, and I don't know what the rest of the plans are for that. But that's here at the church, so please sign up for just you're just acknowledging that you're coming for breakfast is all you're really doing. You're not paying any money, or you know we're not staying overnight or anything like that. This is a four-hour thing from about 8:30 to noon. Uh, so try to come if you can for the men. Just want to remember, uh, I haven't gotten a status on uh, Gwen Arney here in a while, so but as far as I know, he's he's doing okay. That's about all I will say of it because I don't know what the status is. They're trying to get his blood pressure. I'm working on his blood pressure. Really kind of helped me out here. Uh, so be praying for them. Be praying for the Balkans, uh, Sharon. Uh, and uh, and Bob, uh, I had forgotten, I hate to say this, but I had forgotten that Bob was having some problems with his cornea. And that's still going on. So be praying for him on that. Uh, that uh, whatever they end up doing will, will resolve his, his, eye, his vision problem. And then uh, Desiree, uh, I got her on the list because she's going to have her gallbladder removed this week. Friday. Friday. Yeah, so be praying for her. I don't know the details of where it's going to be done or anything like that. Um, and um, she had a birthday party yesterday. If you know, I don't know if anybody got a chance to go. Uh, should I say that? Okay. It was, you, a big one. it was a big birthday. It was a very, you know, one of those milestone ones that you only get to once in, yeah, in your lifetime. She yeah. jumped out of a plane. She was she, going to that, that yeah. Or she couldn't yeah. because now she has to get her gallbladder. See what you did, Jamie. I <laughs> <laughs> Jamie jumped out of a plane. Now everybody wants to jump out of a plane. Way to be a leader, Jamie. There you go. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Bud Crust, we've got his home on the list there. Just keep praying for him. Thank you for the coffee again. There's coffee over here if you guys wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, grab some coffee. I appreciate Bud being back in the in the class and uh, supplying us with coffee and all that. Um, and HBI registration, discipleship two registration, how to disciple registration, all that's going on. You can find that on the on the information on the website. 
Um, so let's go over to second, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms. Yeah, Psalms 120, which this is a short one. We're going to read that. We're going to pray. Um, and uh, I'm going to do the best I can to get through today. Um, just pray for me, too. I woke up this morning not really feeling very well. Um, just kind of worn out. So uh, anyway, second, uh, Psalms chapter 120. David writes, In my distress I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongue. What shall be given unto thee? Or what shall be done unto thee, thou false tongue? Sharp arrows of the mighty with coals of juniper. Woe is me that I sojourn in Mesic, that I dwell in the tents of Kedar. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hated peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Father in heaven, Lord, we just want to thank you and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the opportunity to be here in church this morning, Lord, and to be in a country that uh, allows the freedom of, of, of religion and freedom of worship, Lord. And, and we pray, Father, that, uh, that whenever uh, there are situations going on in our life, Lord, that you would deliver us, uh, that you would help uh, prevent those who would speak lies about us, Lord, and, and speak deceitfully about us, Lord, that you would stop them. Lord, that you would stop those that speak deceitfully and lying about your Son. Lord, help, help us to, to be a, a deliverer of the truth. That every place we go, Lord, we would represent the truth. Even the passage that we're looking at today in 2 Corinthians speaks very highly of that. And I pray, Father, for the strength that you give us in your word. And I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to serve you according to your will. And we just thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. And 
Heavenly Father, our whole world is distressed. But we as Christians know that we don't have to be distressed because we have you. And we can depend on you and trust you fully. And Lord, we do that today. We receive that. We acknowledge our hope and trust. But Father, there's, there's many of us who have too much anxiety because we're listening to the world. We're looking at the storm and taking our eyes off of Jesus. Lord, help us to remember to keep our eyes on you. Father, this morning I just lift up Randy to you. Give him strength, give him peace, and uh, just help him get through this morning's lesson and help him get through this day. Father, I just ask that you would heal him more and, and just help him to feel better. Father, as we conclude in prayer, we're just thankful that we can come before uh, the living God, uh, petition uh, our needs and our desires, Lord, and, and uh, be able to step back and see you work. That's the actual honest uh, assessment of prayer, Lord, is to see you work in our life. And uh, we just thank you that you, that you show yourself uh, as one that we can always rely on, Lord, that we can trust in you, that we can lean heavily on you. We praise you for that. We pray, Father, that you would just continue to guide and direct us, use us according to your will, and help us always to be a reflection of who you want us to be, uh, which is uh, an image and a picture of and uh, a likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. And we just give you honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 um, is where we're at. We're going to um, continue our study in transparency, the transparency of the Christian uh, here in this chapter. And um, Okay, so now I've said this a couple, last couple of times we got together, just as, but I want to mention it one more time, that over the last few weeks that I have said that there's a complexity in this chapter. In fact, there's a complexity in the whole book, but there is definitely in this chapter a lot of complexity that makes it kind of hard to expound the passage just by just going verse by verse by verse and just, okay, what's in this verse, what's in that? I, I, I still try to do that as much as possible, but, but it's interesting. We, we, Paul bounces back and forth. He says something, in a few verses later on, he will make reference to what he just said, bringing another point out, bringing another point towards, towards the truth that he's trying to teach. And so it gets a little bit complex uh, to study it out. It makes it hard to expound the scripture, um, but it also, what it means though, is that we need to really seek the heart of what Paul is trying to say, really I should say what God is trying to say, uh, within this passage. So it's actually a good thing that it's complex. Uh, we don't want to, let, want to let the complexity of, this, of any passage of the scripture to, uh, to cause us to not pay attention to what God is saying. Because uh, here's the thing, with, when you, when you get into a passage that is complex, that sort of kind of scratches your head, don't, don't just go past it. Here's what you ought to pray. God, what are you trying to say to me here? And what, what should I take out of this passage? What, what do you have for me here? And so it's actually a good thing that it's complex because it causes us to really focus on the words of the text, uh, to search out the truth of the, and, and search out the real meaning of the passage. There's a, there's a few verses that we'll get to towards the end that 
get used in a very specific way these days. But that's not actually what Paul is talking about. And so that's, I'll, I'll point that out to you when we get to it. Um, but uh, Paul is, he's still responding. Uh, you know, we're only three chapters into this letter, 13 uh, chapters. And Paul is responding to the accusations from the outsiders of the church. We call them Judaizers, those people that have come in, follow Paul. They, I mean, they, they follow Paul every place Paul went. And when Paul left, they swooped in and tried to change things. When you see that in every letter that Paul t- talked about, you see it in the book of Acts where they chased him out. They created problems, so Paul had to had to leave, or he was his his under his life was threat was under a threat. A couple of places he did, um, but it indicates lose his life. He was stoned, uh, he was shipwrecked, and so on and so forth. Uh, but he's a, he's responding to these outsiders of the church that in his ministry as pastor, this is their accusation. He was the pastor of this church, but he ain't any good. He is a bad pastor. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He never explains himself. He doesn't. He doesn't quote the scriptures properly. He doesn't. In fact, the real argument was he doesn't take you back to the Old Testament. That was their big problem. He didn't take you back to the Old Testament. We talked about that a lot last week, and we'll look at that again a little bit more in depth here. Um, they were they were saying that he was ill-equipped to lead this church. His doctrine was all wrong. He had been teaching. And the problem is, and this is what happens if if you allow somebody into your life. And I told you this last week. If you allow somebody into your life long enough who is a bad influence, ultimately you will follow that influence. Yeah. That you, you know, we think, well, if I hang out with the, with the bad people, I will, I will convert them. And that, would, that ought to happen. But we don't let that happen. For some reason, the, influ- the bad has more influence over us than we have over them. Unless we do what Paul did, which is to stand fast on the word. And that's where we don't do it. So anyway... Uh, Corinth, as a reminder, Corinth was the capital of the province of Achaia, south of Italy. So if you looked on a map, you see where the, the, the country of Italy comes down, you know, the boot hill thing into the Mediterranean. If you follow the hill and just keep going straight in a southeastern direction, that's where um, Corinth would be in Greece. Um, and Corinth was the chief, the chief commercial city there. But it was, noted, it was noted for its wealth. It was a very wealthy city. It was very luxurious, and it was very immoral. They had all kinds of vicious, bad habits. The people made up, there were, there were Romans, there were Greeks, there were Jews. There were all kinds of people there because it was a seaport. And, um, you know, uh, whatever came in with the, from the sea, from another country, they brought their, their vices and their, their, um, their bad behaviors and their sinfulness. And so the city was kind of, it was, it was an immoral lifestyle there, Normally, when you think about this kind of a lifestyle, you would think about a low-rent, sleazy series of shanties and back-alley bars. That's what, that's what uh, Corinth was like. Even though it was rich and wealthy and there was all kinds of money flowing around, money brings all kinds of crime and all kinds of sin and so on. And so much of the sea trade of the Mediterranean from east to west all passed through Corinth at some point in time because Corinth was a... It was a, it was a there was a small... Corinth is an island... There's a small piece of uh, ground that connected to the mainland, uh, and they, they, the ships would come in. Literally, they would park their ships, they would cart them on, they would pick them up, uh, and cart them over uh, a uh, method of getting them across the land, put them back in the water on the south side of that isthmus, and they keep on going. Well, that might take a week or two weeks to do, uh, and so they, you know, the sailors would, you know, they would have their fun in the bars and all that kind of stuff. And so luxuries from all over the world were available, and the vices of the world were also found there. 
So that is the city that Paul visited in about 52 AD. It was on his second missionary journey, if you recall. We're not going to take the look, time to look back at Acts chapter 18. But starting in verse 1, he started his second missionary journey, and he ended up in Corinth. Uh, and um, and he, he stayed there for about 18 months and planted a church. You know, he went into the synagogue like that was the way he always did things. He would go into the synagogue, he would preach. He would get kicked out of the synagogue for, for basically rejecting the law, rejecting Moses and so on. And they would kick him out of the synagogue, and he would go and he'd plant a church, and he'd take a bunch of people with him. That was Paul's method, you know, to basically he would reach the, the religious group, get a church planted, and then reach the lost group. That was his plan. That's that you know, if you're ever praying about how I start a church, that, there's your plan. Take a take a, a group of people who already know, and then go and find some group that doesn't know and, and lead them all to Christ and then train them up and disciple them. That's what happened here. That's what happened really in every church uh, that gets planted. So anyway, he visited the city, he remained in Corinth for eighteen months, he worked with Silas and Timothy, so he had a, a, a church plant team there with him. And then later he re- he went to Antioch. Uh, and then, he, but when he left to go to Antioch, he left a solid church. Now, this church was in a bad place, but it was a solid church because Paul was leading that church, and he didn't let things go wrong that shouldn't go wrong. But after he left, they started to accept the accusations of these Judaizers. They started to listen to what they were saying, started to say, "Well, you know, maybe maybe Paul really wasn't all that good. I mean, these guys think we should go back to this thing they call the law." So, I mean, some of them, most of them are Gentiles in the church, but they were Jews, obviously, started in the synagogue, and the Jews understood, and so they already knew their traditions and their 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 view of Gentiles and so on. So that's kind of where it's at. So, so far, we've covered some great passages of Scripture. Um, so like in the first two chapters, we've covered a lot of material. Let me just kind of give you a real quick, I think it's in your notes, but let me just give you a quick overview. In chapter 1, we learned about the purpose and the comfort of ministry. The purpose of ministry and the comfort of ministry. In chapter 2, we realize that there's a need for Christian transparency. That's why I entitled this study the being transparent, being a transparent Christian. There's a need we see in chapter 2. We talked about seven specific attitudes. Those attitudes included being loyal, being honest, being reliable, being authentic, being sensitive, being pure, and being charitable. All of those things are exactly what we expect out of a believer, isn't it? I mean, that's, that would be a definition. Those seven things would be a definition of what a believer ought to be. When we look at a believer, when a believer, when a lost person looks at a believer, they shouldn't see that we're dishonest. They shouldn't see that we're unreliable. They shouldn't see that we're fake. We should be authentic. We should be pure. We should be charitable. All of those things. That's what a Christian should look like. If you, if you don't look like that, you're never going to get to the door of their heart. You won't be able to enter into their, their life and be able to bring in Christ into their life with you uh, because they don't think you're authentic. They don't think you're transparent enough. Uh, we actually looked at one more, which was I would call the eighth attitude, which was, was forgiveness. Also in chapter 2, we see that Paul describes... Remember we talked about Paul, he went to Troas. After he sent Titus back with the letter, he, he went to Troas. And there we, we discovered that everybody should have a Troas to go back to. Remember we talked about that? There's a door of opportunity, and, and we need to find the door. We, sometimes we just need to be reminded about when you got saved. Go back to the door. Go back to Troas where you met God. Find out what God is calling you to do. Then we talked a lot about that, and I think that's a really good, good illustration there 
uh, go back to Troas. Where is your Troas? Every one of us should have a Troas. We talked about all that in chapter 2. Lastly, we were reminded of the occasion that we need to... Okay, so I just said that. Let me check and get my notes right. So at the beginning of chapter 3, because we've been in chapter 3 now, I think... Is this the third week? I think it's the third week. Um, we found out that all of us are sufficient. Everybody, God considers you sufficient. He says you're sufficient to minister. And you know why you're sufficient? Because God has given you the... He's made you able. So those two things we looked at in the first... Uh, uh, part of chapter 3 was that you're sufficient and that you're able to minister that's in verses 5 and 6 that you're able to meet the task that God has for you I know many, many people would say oh I'm not able to do that I could never do that I could never I could never be like that yes you can because God has made you as sufficient as Pastor Brian God has made you as sufficient as any missionary God has made you as able as you need to be to get the job done don't ever think I'm not able because you're actually denying Christ. You're denying what God wants to do in your life when you say, I'm not able to do that. And God says, yes, you are. I just made you able. I put my stamp on you. You're able to do it. Don't, don't go against God. It's not fun. Even if you think, well, I'm not really able. I mean, you know, God, well, if God wants you to do it, he'll make, he'll make clear. He's already made it clear. You're able. If you're even thinking about it, God has made you able to do it. Okay, so we talked about that. And then last week, uh, last week we looked at the mini- how, what ministry looks like, so that we understand that we are to, we are called into finishing up a discussion of the glory of God. That's what we're going to look finish up today. That discussion of the glory of God, which is where we are going to pick up. Well, we're going to finish up that side right now, starting in verse twelve. We're actually going to work. We're going to try to get it all the way to the end of this chapter. So that's uh, that's not that many verses, but there is it's a huge. Um, lesson here that we're going to look at. Well, I'm just going to read and start at verse 12. Uh, I'll read down 12 and 13. Well, let's go all the way down to 15. We'll, we'll read that. Starting in verse 12, it says, Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of what that which was abolished, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth, in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now go ahead and read the last few verses here. Not that, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with giant, or with an open face, beholding as the, in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Okay, so verses 12 and 13, Paul, Paul brings out a couple of th- really cool things. Our hope is proclaimed, he says. So that's the first thing he starts off with. He says, so then, um, seeing then that we have such hope. What hope? He, 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 the hope of everything he just got done talking about in the first 11 verses that we've looked at the last couple of weeks. So we have hope in something that we often, you know, we often use the term, it's interesting sometimes, we say, I hope. How many of you ever said, I hope? Every one of us has said, I hope, at some point in time, right? And so we've all said, I hope, which is simply, that's, okay, so it's a, it's, that's, a, that's right on the edge of being a prayer. It's not really a prayer when you say, I hope, but it's right on the edge of it. It's right on the edge, okay? Uh, it's simply because you're declaring your wishes. I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get a brand new car. I hope whatever, right? That's just kind of a desire that you have. And so, while I hope could be considered a form of a prayer, 
It is the least strongest prayer you can make. It is the least strongest prayer. And let me say what that. The weakness in I hope or I wish is that it neither puts God in the center. Instead, what you hope or what, what you wish for is what's in the center. See, God needs to be in the center of your prayer. And when you say I hope for whatever, I hope dot, 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 whatever that is, that's the center of your prayer. That's why it's a weak prayer. I hope my friends get saved. Well, then pray that they get saved. Don't pray that I hope they get saved. It's a difference. There's a difference there. So prayer should draw you to God, not turn God into a wish filler. I used to say when I was going to the City Union Mission all the time, I would say, this is not a, a genie in a black book. You can't just rub this and make a wish and get your answer. Because that's what a lot of people think, at least they did then, I don't know, maybe they still do. That God, you can just like, I wish this would happen and God will just miraculously make it happen. Yeah. That is not a good prayer. He is not a fairy godmother. He is not a, he, exactly. Fairy godmother, uh, he, you know, he's not a genie in a black book. He's not any of that kind of stuff. He is the creator. And we need to always come to him and put him in the center of our life. And that's where prayer is at. So in Romans chapter 3, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9, verse 3, Paul writes, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He writes that because he wanted them to be saved. But this is kind of a, you know, as much as, as, as strong as he felt about that, that's actually one of those places where Paul kind of was that I wish, I hope, I hope my, my kinsmen would get prayed or we get saved. You know, I mean, he did what he needed to do, but that's kind of a statement. Like, I just hope that they get saved. In John chapter, I'm sorry, the letter of Third John, first uh, chapter one, verse two, John writes, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospered. I wish that this could happen. And he's not praying that. He's just saying, that's what I desire for you to be, to be healthy and to be, be right with God. There's actually only seven times the phrase, I hope, is used in the Bible. Now, I got them listed in your notes, but I'm just going to go through them kind of quickly here. Seven times where the phrase, I hope, is. And the reason I point these out is because... Even though it says, I hope, the desire is not for whatever they hope for, the, 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 the writers of these psalms. The desire is they put God in the middle. So if you always put God in the middle, then how would you say, I pray or I, I hope or I wish, oh God, please do this. Put God in the middle. Okay, Psalm chapter 38, verse 15. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Well, who's in the center of that? You or God is. God's in the center. Psalm chapter 119, verse 81. My soul fainteth for thy salvation, but I hope in thy word. What's in the center? God and his word. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 114, Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope in thy word. I mean, that whole statement is God is in the middle. Right? God is my hiding place. God is my shield. God is, his word is where I find hope in those kind of things. That's where you pray, I hope. I hope I don't ever lose sight of God's word. That would be prayer. That's a center, that's, centering God. I hope that I always serve the Lord. That's putting God in the center. I, I wish that I could do a better job of preaching the gospel. That's putting God in the center. When we say something like that, we're, we're, not, we're not putting something that we des selfishly desire in the middle of our prayer. We're putting God and His Word and His, mission, his ministry and His mission and His purpose in, in, in the right place. In Psalm chapter 130 verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait. And in his word do I hope. And then uh, Lamentations are two in the book of Lamentations. 
uh, uh, Jeremiah writes, This I recall to my friend, therefore have I hope. I'm, I'm telling my friends, I'm recalling the truth to my friends, and I have hope that I'd be able to speak to them. And he says in Psalm 3, or I'm sorry, Lamentations 3, verse 24, The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. Obviously, sinners, the Lord is my portion. And then Philippians, the only one in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verse 23, Him therefore I hope to sin presently, so soon as I shall see how it shall, be, how it shall go with me. Paul said, I hope to sin. That's that's an intention. That's not really a prayer. But you see the difference? I mean, it's not a bad thing that Paul said it. Don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with hoping. There's nothing wrong with saying I hope. It's, it's fine. Just make sure you, 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 you really recognize what you're saying when you say that. Because our hope that Paul actually referred to in verse 12, our hope is actually back in verse 9. And go back and look at verse 9, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. For in the ministration of condemnation, or if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. So our hope in, is in verse nine, where it is called the glory of the ministration of righteousness. That's a that's kind of a mouthful there. The glory of the ministration of righteousness. You know what that is? The gospel. I'm ministering the gospel. My my uh, my hope is that I always be ministering the gospel. You know, Israel had a hope as well. Israel. Israel had a hope in the glory of the law written on the tables of stone. That's what he's talking about at the very first part of verse 9. Says, For then the ministration of condemnation be glory. So at least they were trying. They were just in the wrong place. Israel had a hope in the glory of the law on the that was written on the table of stone, but their hope is not there. It's, it's, not there. it's there, but it's, it should be on Christ. And uh, I'll detail that a little bit further here in just a moment. Our hope is in the gospel of Christ. That's where our hope should be. Our hope is always in the gospel of Christ. The gospel is what got you saved. Our hope is salvation, is that is that you that you're saved. Our hope is that somebody else gets saved. Our hope is that I get a chance to share the gospel. Those are those are valid things uh, that you're desired. And that change that that I hope I get a chance to share the gospel is a is a valid desire, but that that directs your prayer. God, give me boldness when it's time to speak when I have a chance and I'm in front of the people that I want to witness to. See, your prayer now, be, your desire now formulates your prayer instead of your desire being your prayer. Your desire formulates your prayer. I want people to get saved. Lord, command me, help me to be strong enough to obey so I can witness to people. That is, I hope that I can share the gospel and now it directs my prayer. And that's what, that's what Paul is talking about here. Um, our hope is in the gospel that was ministered to us by, to, by us to others when the Spirit is written in the tables of the heart. That's back in verse 3. Remember, we, we looked at that, verses 3, uh, verse um, 1 to 6. We kind of talked about the, the, the contrast between the, the tables of stone and the tables of the flesh. So our hope is secured because Christ is our hope. Now we see Christ is our hope. That's our solid hope, right? First Timothy chapter one, verse one. Paul tells of Timothy, all of, and Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. So our hope is actually in Christ. We have a desire, but our hope is in Christ. So our prayer that that motivates our prayer that 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 directs our prayer. What should our prayer be if our hope is in Christ? That Christ be manifested. 
I pray that Christ be manifested. I pray that Christ be manifested through me. I pray that I am transparent enough that people can see Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now, let me just say this. Hope is not the same as faith either. Because sometimes people inter interchange those two words, hope and faith. Uh, faith is the result of hope. Faith is the result of hope. Paul said that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Colossians 1, 27, it said, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That, that's, Paul declared what faith is in reality. So here's the thing. Hope, you have hope because it's built on faith. So if Christ is our faith, if Christ is our hope, and we want him to be proclaimed, our faith is in him. So hope is built on faith, which is the reason that I would say, I hope prayer is weak. There's no good foundation in I hope prayer. Any kind of I hope prayer is just weak. It doesn't have a foundation. Um, hope is the anticipation of the fulfillment. I don't know why I said it this way. Hope is the anticipation of the fulfillment of faith, is what I should have said in my notes. Um, so it's the assurance of future activity. Hope and faith is the assurance of future activity yet unseen. They're complementary types of things. Faith and hope complement they, they complement each other. So consider this as an example. So Julie, um, Julie had a chance to take our grandkids to the zoo. And so she told, she told them, we're going to go to the zoo. Okay, so she represents a parent, a grandparent, and she made a promise. And so, especially Addie, she was like, just, I mean, when you tell Addie something, she doesn't forget. The next day, it's like, when are we going to the zoo? Are we, going, are we still going to the zoo? How are we going to get there? When are we leaving? Where are we going? And so there was this anticipation, right? So, so there's this, um, uh, her, her, her um, even though we had, she hadn't gotten to the zoo yet, her joy about anticipating their arrival, that's hope. But she had faith in her word. Because she said, I will take you to the zoo. And so she was very careful not to disappoint. God is the same way. When God says to you, I'm here, I got it covered. You can have faith in him and hope in the end. They come, they come together. Okay, so faith is grounded in the reality of the past as well. Faith is grounded in the reality of the past. Hope is looking to the future. Looking to the future becoming real. So that without faith, there is no hope. So where's, where's our faith? Our faith is in what Christ did. Yeah. right? Not what he's going to do. Our, we, we have hope in what he's going to do because we have faith in what he did. We know what he's going to do because of what he did. So faith is grounded in the reality of the past. And hope is looking to the future. You cannot expect hope in your resurrection if Christ had not already resurrected. You know that? Paul said that in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 15. He says that if Christ had been not resurrected, then we won't resurrect either. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, he says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. In hope of eternal life. You have hope in eternal life because God promised through his Son, who now has eternal life, who has always been eternal, and he, is, he, he gives us that hope. 
and we have faith in that. So we have hope of life because we have faith in the word, or in the work, I should say. We have hope in life, hope of life because we have faith in the work. Faith is based on past facts. Hope is based on the reality of the future. And belief is one other little bring in this just for thinking about it. Belief is the active exercise of your faith. Okay, but then not only does he say about our hope, he has says something else that's really interesting in verse 12. We still haven't got out of verse 12 yet. Verse 12, he says, we have such hope, comma, we use great plainness of speech. That's an interesting phrase, great plainness of speech. To be a minister of the gospel does not require you to have a thick vocabulary. Some, some preachers like to use you know, $10 words and impress you with the $10 words. But you don't need $10 words. You don't even need 50-cent words. You just need words. You need plainness of speech, Paul says. What is really required is speaking plain. To, work, to speak plain, none of you all know this. Literally, it means to speak your mind and to speak it with frankness, boldness, assurance, and confidence. Your mind, where should your mind be? On Christ, right? Because you, the Bible says that you have the mind of Christ. So if you're speaking your mind, don't speak your mind. Speak Christ's mind. Be careful which mind you choose to use and speak out of. Remember, remember Peter and John when they were arrested in Acts chapter 4 for proclaiming Christ their, uh, their, their, their fellow ministry partners were, uh, were hidden out praying a powerful request they said Lord behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that, thy all, that with all boldness they may speak thy word that's what the people the, the, the ministry partners of, of Peter and John at the very beginning of the church, at the very beginning of the, of the outreach of the church in Acts chapter 4, they were saying, give them boldness. Give them the words to speak. And a few verses back from that, back in verse 13 of Acts chapter 4, the high priest and the others, they saw that they called these men unlearned and ignorant. They don't have all the big fancy words. They haven't been educated. They don't. Why are they saying all of these things? They marveled at their wisdom, though, and they marveled at their boldness, and they marveled at the knowledge that they had that was revealed by their plainness of speech. That's what they were marveling at. In an Acts chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, we don't have to turn there, but Paul asked for prayer. Remember, he asked for prayer that he would be able to speak boldly and make the mysteries known through, the, through plain speaking. So you and I, all of us, you've been made sufficient. You've been given the ability to, do, to accomplish it and you have words that can come out of your mouth you have a vocabulary every one of us has a vocabulary you just give the Bible the Bible is our vocabulary for witnessing just give the Bible just give the text of the scripture and that takes care of a lot of things okay and then in verses 13 to 15 this is, this, this is going to get a little um, well there's going to be a lot here I, was, I, I called verse 15, 13 to 15 the veil that blinds while the veil frees. Now, okay, so let me explain there. Um, verse 13, let's read that again. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not sit fast and look to the end of that which was abolished, but their minds were blinded until this day remaineth the same veil taken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil 
is done away in Christ, but even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. We'll pause right there. He's talking about these veils. So, unlike Paul, Moses spake through a covering. Moses spoke through a covering. If you turn back to uh, Exodus chapter... We'll, we'll go there in a minute. Let's just go ahead and go back. Exodus chapter 34... Exodus 34, starting at verse 29. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. Exodus 34, 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hand. When he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he, while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come nigh to him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him. And Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them a commandment, all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And in verse 33, until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face, but when Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake with the children of Israel that he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses at the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak unto him, speak with him, going back in to speak with God. Okay, so here's the point. Moses, he did not wear a veil while speaking, he wore a veil. Okay, I know it's confusing, but it's actually spelled two different ways. He did not wear a veil as in V-E-I-L. That's in Matthew chapter 27, the veil that was torn. He wore a veil, V-A-I-L. So there's two different words, two different meanings. And so a veil, V-E-I-L, is a curtain spread out to cover and to close off such as the curtain that was covering the Holy of Holies. That's a V-E-I-L. He didn't wear the V-E-I-L. He wore a V-A-I-L. Uh, Moses spoke through a veil. Kind of like you and I having to speak through wearing a face mask. Okay, now you know, and I know, that when somebody's speaking to you through a face mask, you're like, what? Let me say it again. Put the mask back on, right? So we, you have to do that, because the mask blocks what is trying what's tr the communication is being blocked he's wearing a veil a V-A-I-L covering that prevents a thing from being understood V-A-I-L is a covering that prevents a thing from being understood that's the face mask <coughs> and so Moses spake through a veil like we do today like talking while we're wearing a face mask so that's verse 13 when he talks about that go back to 2 uh, Corinthians so in verses 14 and 15 now, he kind of expands that. Verse 15 says, But even unto this day when Moses has read the veil, V-A-I-L, is upon their heart. And so, uh, so the limit of the veil was in understanding. The V-A-I-L limits your understanding. You know how it is. If somebody's trying to preach or have a conversation, you're trying to order something through the drive-thru, and you have a veil on, you have that mask on, they don't like, I don't know what you said. Oh, that's a $37. Because they, they thought you ordered 10 burgers or something. 
Okay, so here's the thing. Let's compare. So when we look at Exodus chapter 34, which we've already read, and compare what's going on here. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with his face shining, right? He came down. He didn't know his face was shining. The people saw it, and it scared them. It's kind of like when you get a, you know, like if you've been out in the sun all day, and you come back, and your face is all red and glowing and sunburned or, or bright. You know, you got the sun on your face. And so it was like, oh, you got a sunburn. You didn't know that until somebody told you did. So that's kind of where Moses was at. We'll come back to all that in a moment. But the shining on his face was due to the glory of God reflected on his face. It's so such an unusual sight that it frightened the people. So They were so scared that they could not listen to his proclamation of the truth. Their, their understanding was blocked because of this, his face, and he put a mask on. So to ease their grief, he put this veil on. And he tried to talk through it. And when, he, and when he would leave and get done with them, and he'd go back up to the Mount Sinai, he would take the mask off. He'd take the face mask off because he's with God now. He doesn't need to cover his face anymore. He's a, so that's a, it's really interesting how all this works out. It's a shame that, that they were afraid because Paul says in verse 7 that the light of the glory was seen in the face of Moses. If you look verse go back to verse 7 of 2 Corinthians. But in the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, in stones with glory, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. So, Paul is saying in verse 7 uh, that the light of the glory was seen in the face of Moses, but they missed it. The veil that was put on, the veil with an A, kept Israel from understanding the word of God that was proclaimed by Moses about their Savior. Moses came down and he's preaching to the truth. He's given the, he's given the word. He's, he's explaining the truth. And they, were, they, were, they, they couldn't understand because this veil was covering their face, covering Moses' face. And they were like, what's his face look like now? Is it still shining? Uh, they were not paying attention to what he was saying. They were so worried about what was on his face and what, he, what his face looked like. The people could not, as verse 13 says, steadfastly look. They couldn't steadfastly look. Where? Paul says they struggled to look to the end of what was abolished. Basically what it is is the veil, it kept, an under, kept them from understanding. It kept them from seeing the truth. Basically, just like what all of us do sometimes. I know I did when I, before I got saved. I would be given the word of God and I couldn't see past what they were saying to see my need for salvation. And we all have done that, and people have done that to us. We're like, it's as plain as day. You need to get saved. Don't you understand? And they're like, no, I don't see it. That's because there's a veil on their heart, Paul even says, that there's a veil on their heart. Even to this day, there's a veil on their heart. Okay, so what is this light of glory? I just wanted to touch on this for just a minute. The brightness that's shown on Moses' face caused him to glow after being exposed. Now, this word is not a Bible word, but it is, the concept is there. I don't know if you've ever heard of what's called Shekinah glory. Okay, so Shekinah, the word Shekinah is a Hebrew word that basically refers to the manifest presence of God. The brightness, man, the manifest, the brightness, this light that shines is so bright, it's the manifold presence of God. The word Shekinah itself, as I said, is not in the Bible, but it, it, the attitude or the, uh, the, the concept is there. 
The word is used to describe the abiding dwelling or habitation of the physical manifestation of God. Like in Exodus chapter 24, which we hadn't read yet, but in Exodus 24, verse 16, the glory of the Lord above abode upon the Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So there's the glory of the Lord abode at the mount. So the glory of the Lord, where is God? He's at the top of the mount. He's at his, in his throne. So there's several places, just real quick examples, because we're running out of time. Real quick examples of this thing here. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, when it says that God created, the, the, um, he created light out of darkness, but there wasn't a sun. The lightness, that's, that's the, the brightness of Christ, of God. That that's, represents Christ. Uh, not only that, but in, um, in Matthew chapter 17, when, when Jesus Christ took his disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he, he was uh, bright. He was showing. I remember verse seventeen. Let me flip over here real quick. How the word is. I don't want to mistake that. Matthew seventeen and verse three says, "And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking to them." Uh, let me back up. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. That passage, that light that he's talking about, that's the Shekinah glory. And in one more place that, we, that you may want to think about is uh, when he indwelled the tabernacle. When Once the tabernacle was built and God would come down and meet Moses in the tabernacle and dwell among the people of Israel, the whole tabernacle glowed in a light. Um, okay, so there's the light. because See, they didn't see that. Israel didn't see it. They, they saw the face. They saw this, the, the face mask and they're like, I don't know what this is all about. And then they did not see what was behind it. Because in actuality, I think, it was a little bit, if not, if not completely, but at least a little bit of transparency on this veil that Abraham or that Moses was wearing. Just a little bit. If they had looked long enough, they would have seen past and seen the truth of what Moses was presenting to them, which was their salvation. Because that's what God was saying. He said, look, I brought you, to, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to the Mount Sinai so that you could be my people and I would be your God. And they said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see it. I can't see it. And so that was their problem. That's our problem for us a lot of times too. But there's a message behind the veil. And Paul is contrasting the ministration of death with the ministration of righteousness by an example of the veil of Moses. Now this is, hang on to this. This is, and we may have to end at this point. But anyway, Paul, he's trying to make a point here. Notice there's something here in, in verses 14 and 15, you know, 2 Corinthians verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, Paul writes, The same veil untaken un, un away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But in verse 15, he said, Unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. There's two parts to that. If you don't look past the past the Old Testament to see the truth of Christ, you're going to miss it. And that's what happens. But if you just go back and just look at Moses, remember, Paul is trying to communicate to the church. These Judaizers, don't want, they want to take you back to the Old Testament. Don't go back there. That is not where you need to be. Don't read the Old Testament. See what Moses, or don't read Moses. Read the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament speaks of Christ. Even Jesus Christ himself said that. He said, uh, the, the prophets and the writings and the psalms and everything, they speak of me, he said, in, I think it's in Luke 24. And he, he said, so 
So don't, don't just read Moses. Don't, don't go back to Moses. If you're going to go back to anything, go back to the Old Testament and see that Christ is proclaimed there. So, when Moses came down from the mountain with the glory shining on his face, it blinded their minds, according to verse 14. And Paul declares that even now in Corinth, there is blindness. And in verse 15, even to this day, this day, right now, today, there's blindness of understanding in people's hearts. What the people in the Old Testament failed to see beyond was that they could not, they could see through the veil that they didn't want to. There was a, it was, that's why I say it was transparent. I think, it was, I think if they had looked beyond the veil in Moses' face, they would have seen the reality of the glory of God. And they missed that. They missed the glory of God. They lost out on all of that stuff, and that's why they lived for as long as they did in the desert, and that's why they went through all that they did in the, in the Old Testament. But let me give you the parallel. I'm going to cut, cut to the chase here. Let me give you the parallel between Moses and, and Jesus. Because they operated the same way. Uh, Moses operated the same as Jesus to present the light of the glorious gospel to the people, but they were afraid to look on. Moses, Moses basically came down with the word of God, having met with God, and he wants to present God to the people of Israel, and they missed it. That's what Jesus Christ did as well. Uh, Jesus Christ wanted to get the presence, of, get to the presence of God. How did he do that? He had to tear the veil. Right? When Jesus Christ died, what did he do? Jesus ascended to the heaven. He ascended to heaven, shed his blood on the on the mercy seat. But he had to get past his flesh. His flesh had to be torn. The tabernacle had to be torn. The only way that you and I can get to Christ is through 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 Christ, the shed blood of Christ, the tearing of His flesh. Remember, He got He got uh, what is the word um, uh, scourged, and His flesh was ripped apart. Um, in order to see God, the people needed to see past the veil of Moses. And if we are and for you and me, in order to see God, we must get through the torn veil in the tabernacle that kept everybody away from the presence of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll finish up with Hebrews 10. And I'll, I'll finish the chapter next week. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 10, verse 20. says, talking about Christ, it says, By now, or by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Paul in verse 10, of, of verse 20 of Hebrews 10, is equating the torn veil, the, the, the veil that's torn in two, with the flesh of Christ being torn apart so that you have access to Him. Because you would never have access to God if it wasn't for Christ's sacrifice. Well, not only did He sacrifice, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because every time Moses went to, to, to the presence of God, he took the veil off his face. He, had, he took the veil off of his face so he could be in the presence of God, so that he would, he would reflect the glory of God, even to God. Our life should be that. Our life should reflect the glory of God, not just to the world, but to God himself as well. We should be a sweet savor to God. And so the verse says that there is a new way, verse Hebrews 10, 20, there is a new way to consecration, which is through the flesh of Christ, sacrificed on the cross, but the veil, V-E-I-L, needed to be torn first as Christ's flesh was torn in sacrifice for all. So, that's where you're, that's, that's all that. Let me, I, I'm going to go ahead, just give me two minutes and I'll finish verses 17 and 18. I want you to dwell on all of that stuff in verses 13 and 15 though. But verse 17, 
It says, now the, now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So let me just say this. That's not a political statement. I know a lot of times we like to grab a hold of that statement and thrust it into the, the realm of politics and say, if we just had God in the White House, God in the Capitol House, then, then the liberty would be there and the whole, the whole country would be free. That's not what Paul's talking about. If you take the track of everything that we just talked about, he's not talking about that. It, it may be a true statement, and you can use that verse, but it's not doctrinally what he's talking about. He's already told the church in, verses, in, in, verse, in chapter 2 that he came to declare the gospel regardless of any weakness he may have. He also said that he, wanted to de- he, he was determined to know Christ back in 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He made the point of saying that he wanted to preach Christ. That's all Paul desired. He wanted to know Christ. He wanted to preach Christ. He wanted to, he wanted to speak of Christ. He was only concerned that he had the liberty to preach because he already had the veil of his heart removed in chapter 9 of Acts. So you have a son saying, well, you have that veil. You, that veil has been removed from you. You have, the, 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 you have salvation. You have the Spirit of God in you. And where the Spirit of God is, you have the liberty to proclaim the Spirit of God and proclaim the ministration of righteousness. That's what we have the right to do. That's where you get the right to speak, right there. It's not, it's not just because it's a political statement. It's that you, have, you should have the boldness to speak the truth because God has given you the spirit of the, right, of, of the ministration of the righteousness. Our face... So we no longer we have that we're no longer we, we are no longer to veil the truth by covering our faces. We are to declare the glory of God in such a way that we are transparent, so that others may behold the glory of God. And our face should be as though they are looking through a clear glass. Through and verse eighteen says this, and then we'll finish and we'll be done. But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of God. We have an open face. Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit of the Lord. So we're no longer wearing a veil. We shouldn't be wearing a veil. Sometimes we wear a veil anyway. Sometimes we put that veil back on ourselves so we don't have to let people know that we're Christian. Take the veil off. You have the ability. God has made you sufficient. Take the veil off. And so we are to declare the glory of God in such a way that we are transparent so that others may behold the glory of God as if they're looking through a glass. You, transparent glass. And they look through you and they see Christ. Okay, let's finish up. We'll pray. We'll be out of here. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for what uh, uh, Paul is teaching us here, Lord. And just and I know this is there's a lot of complexities in this chapter, but Lord, it's a powerful chapter and it's an awesome chapter to study out and to, to encourage us uh, to be bold, plain speakers, declares of the truth. And we just thank you and praise you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Glad you made it. Where's your wife? Grab a cup of coffee real quick.